This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Camp of the Dog by Algernon Blackwood Part 3 Read by Charles Blakemore So it came about that I stayed with our island party, putting off my second exploring trip from day to day. And I think that this far-fetched instinct to watch Sangree was really the cause of my postponement. For another ten days the life of the camp pursued its even and delightful way, blessed by perfect summer weather, a good harvest of fish, fine winds for sailing, and calm starry nights. Maloney's selfish prayer had been favorably received. Nothing came to disturb or perplex. There was not even the prowling of night animals to vex the rest of Mrs. Maloney, for in previous camps it had often been her peculiar affliction that she heard the porcupines scratching against the canvas, or the squirrels dropping fir cones in the early morning, with a sound of miniature thunder on the roof of her tent. But on this island there was not even a squirrel or a mouse. I think two toads and a small and harmless snake were the only living creatures that had been discovered during the whole of the first fortnight, and these two toads were, in all probability, not two toads, but one toad. Then, suddenly, came the terror that changed the whole aspect of the place, the devastating terror. It came, at first, gently, but from the very start it made me realize the unpleasant loneliness of our situation our remote isolation in this wilderness of sea and rock, and how the islands in this tideless Baltic ocean lay about us like the advance guard of a vast besieging army. Its entry, as I say, was gentle, hardly noticeable, in fact, to most of us. Singularly undramatic it certainly was, but then, in actual life, this is often the way the dreadful climaxes move upon us, leaving the heart undisturbed almost to the last minute, and then overwhelming it with a sudden rush of horror. For it was the custom at breakfast to listen patiently while each in turn related the trivial adventures of the night, how they slept, whether the wind shook their tent, whether the spider on the ridge-pole had moved, whether they had heard the toad, and so forth. And on this particular morning Joan, in the middle of a little pause, made a truly novel announcement. "'In the night I heard the howling of a dog,' she said, "'and then flushed up to the roots of her hair as we burst out laughing. "'For the idea of there being a dog on this forsaken island "'that was only able to support a snake and two toads was distinctly ludicrous. "'And I remember Maloney, halfway through his burnt porridge, "'capping the announcement by declaring that he had heard "'a Baltic turtle in the lagoon.' and his wife's expression of frantic alarm before the laughter undeceived her. But the next morning Joan repeated the story with additional and convincing detail. Sounds of whining and growling woke me, she said, and I distinctly heard sniffing under my tent and the scratching of paws. "'Oh, Timothy, can it be a porcupine?' exclaimed the boatswain's mate with distress, forgetting that Sweden was not Canada." but the girl's voice had sounded to me in quite another key, and looking up I saw that her father and Sangree were staring at her hard. They too understood that she was in earnest, 
and had been struck by the serious note in her voice. "'Rubbish, Joan, you're always dreaming something or other wild,' her father said, a little impatiently. "'There's not an animal of any size on the whole island,' added Sangri, with a puzzled expression. He never took his eyes from her face. "'But there's nothing to prevent one swimming over,' I put in briskly, for somehow a sense of uneasiness that was not pleasant had woven itself into the talk in pauses. A deer, for instance, might easily land in the night and take a look around. "'Or a bear!' gasped the boatswain's mate, with a look so portentous that we all welcomed the laugh. But Joan did not laugh. Instead, she sprang up and called us to follow. There, she said, pointing to the ground by her tent, on the farthest side from her mother's. There are the marks close to my head you can see for yourselves. We saw plainly the moss and lichen, for earth there was hardly any, had been scratched up by paws. An animal about the size of a large dog it must have been, to judge by the marks. We stood and stared in a row. "'Close to my head,' repeated the girl, looking round at us. Her face, I noticed, was very pale, and her lip seemed to quiver for an instant. Then she gave a sudden gulp and burst into a flood of tears. The whole thing had come about in the brief space of a few minutes, and with a curious sense of inevitableness, moreover, as though it had all been carefully planned from all time, and nothing could have stopped it. It had all been rehearsed before, had actually happened before, as the strange feeling some, sometimes has it. It seemed like the opening movement in some ominous drama, and that I knew exactly what would happen next. Something of great moment was impending. For this sinister sensation of coming disaster made itself felt from the very beginning, and an atmosphere of gloom and dismay pervaded the entire camp from that moment forward. I drew Sangri to one side and moved away, while Maloney took the distressed girl into her tent, and his wife followed them, energetic and greatly flustered. For thus, in undramatic fashion, it was that the terror I have spoken of first attempted the invasion of our camp, and trivial and unimportant though it seemed, every little detail of this opening scene is photographed upon my mind with merciless accuracy and precision. It happened exactly as described. This was exactly the language used. I see it written before me in black and white. I see, too, the faces of all concerned with the sudden, ugly signature of alarm where once had been peace. The terror had stretched out, so to speak, a first tentative feeler towards us. It had touched the hearts of each with a horrid directness. And from this moment the camp changed. Sangri, in particular, was visibly upset. He could not bear to see the girl distressed, and to hear her actually cry was almost more than he could stand. The feeling that he had no right to protect her hurt him keenly, and I could see that he was itching to do something to help, and liked him for it. His expression said plainly that he would tear in a thousand pieces anything that dared to injure a hair of her head. We lit our pipes, and strolled over in silence to the men's quarters and it was his odd Canadian expression, gee whiz, that drew my attention to a further discovery. The brute's been scratching round my tent, too, he cried, as he pointed to similar marks by the door, and I stooped down to examine them. We both stared in amazement for several minutes without speaking. 
Only I sleep like the dead, he added, straightening up again, and so I heard nothing, I suppose. We traced the paw marks from the mouth of his tent in a direct line across to the girls, but nowhere else about the camp was there a sign of the strange visitor. The deer, dog, or whatever it was, that had twice favored us with a visit in the night, had confined its attention to these two tents. And after all, there was really nothing out of the way about these visits of an unknown animal, for although our island was destitute of life, we were in the heart of a wilderness, and the mainland and larger islands must be swarming with all kinds of four-footed creatures, and no very prolonged swimming was necessary to reach us. In any other country it would not have caused a moment's interest. Interest of the kind we felt, that is. In our Canadian camps the bears were forever grunting about among the provision bags at night, porcupines scratching unceasingly, and chipmunks scuttling over everything. "'My daughter is overtired, and that's the truth of it,' explained Maloney, presently when he had rejoined us and had examined in turn the other paw marks. "'She's been overdoing it lately, and camp life, you know, always means a great excitement to her. It's natural enough. If we take no notice, she'll be all right.' He paused to borrow my tobacco pouch and fill his pipe, and the blundering way he filled it, and spilled the precious weed on the ground, visibly belied the calm of his easy language. "'You might take her out for a bit of fishing, Hubbard, like a good chap. She's hardly up to the long day in the cutter. Show her some of the other islands in your canoe, perhaps, eh?' And by lunchtime the cloud had passed away as suddenly and as suspiciously as it had come. But in the canoe on our way home, having till then purposely ignored the subject uppermost in our minds, she suddenly spoke to me in a way that again touched the note of sinister alarm, the note that kept on sounding and sounding until finally John Silence came with his great vibrating presence and relieved it, yes, and even after he came, too, for a while. "'I'm ashamed to ask it,' she said abruptly as she steered me home her sleeves rolled up, her hair blowing in the wind, but ashamed of my silly tears, too, because I really can't make out what caused them. But, Mr. Hubbard, I want you to promise me not to go off for your long expeditions. Just yet. I beg it of you. She was so in earnest that she forgot the canoe, and the wind caught it sideways and made us roll dangerously. I've tried hard not to ask this, she added, bringing the canoe around again but I simply can't help myself. It was a good deal to ask, and I suppose my hesitation was plain, for she went on before I could reply, and her beseeching expression and intensity of manner impressed me very forcibly. For another two weeks only. Mr. Sangree leaves in a fortnight, I said, seeing at once what she was driving at, but wondering if it was best to encourage her or not. "'If I knew you were to be on the island till then,' she said, her face alternately pale and blushing, and her voice trembling a little, "'I should feel so much happier.' I looked at her steadily, waiting for her to finish. "'And safer,' she added, almost in a whisper, especially at night, I mean. "'Safer, Joan?' I repeated, thinking I had never seen her eyes so soft and tender." She nodded her head, keeping her gaze fixed on my face. It was really difficult to refuse whatever my thoughts and judgment may have been. And somehow I understood that she spoke with good reason, though for the life of me I could not have put it into words. Happier, 
"'And safer,' she said gravely, the canoe giving a dangerous lurch as she leaned forward in her seat to catch my answer. Perhaps, after all, the wisest way was to grant her request and make light of it, easing her anxiety without too much encouraging its cause. "'All right, Joan, you queer creature, I promise!' And the instant look of relief in her face, and the smile that came back like sunlight in her eyes, made me feel that, unknown to myself and the world, I was capable of considerable sacrifice, after all. "'But you know there's nothing to be afraid of,' I added sharply. And she looked up in my face with the smile women use, when they know we are talking idly, yet do not wish to tell us so. "'You don't feel afraid, I know,' she observed quietly. "'Of course not. Why should I?' "'So if you will just humor me this once, I—' "'I will never ask anything foolish of you again as long as I live,' she said gratefully. "'You have my promise,' was all I could find to say. She headed the nose of the canoe for the lagoon, lying a quarter of a mile ahead, and paddled swiftly. But a minute or two later she paused again and stared hard at me with the dripping paddle across the thwarts. "'You've not heard anything at night yourself, have you?' she asked. "'I never hear anything at night,' I replied shortly, "'from the moment I lie down till the moment I get up.' That dismal howling, for instance, she went on, determined to get it out, far away at first, and then getting closer, and stopping just outside the camp? Certainly not, because sometimes I think I almost dreamed it. Most likely you did, was my unsympathetic response. And you don't think father has heard it either, then? No, he would have told me if he had. This seemed to relieve her mind a little. I know mother hasn't, she added, as if speaking to herself, for she hears nothing, ever. It was two nights after this conversation that I woke out of deep sleep and heard sounds of screaming. The voice was really horrible, breaking the peace and silence with its shrill clamor. In less than ten seconds I was half-dressed and out of my tent. The screaming had stopped abruptly, but I knew the general direction and ran as fast as the darkness would allow over to the women's quarters. And on getting close I heard sounds of suppressed weeping. It was Joan's voice. And just as I came up I saw Mrs. Maloney, marvelously attired, fumbling with a lantern. Other voices became audible in the same moment behind me, and Timothy Maloney arrived, breathless, less than half-dressed, and carrying another lantern that had gone out on the way from being banged against a tree. Dawn was just breaking, and a chill wind blew in from the sea. Heavy black clouds drove low overhead. The scene of confusion may be better imagined than described. Questions and frightened voices filled the air against this background of suppressed weeping. Briefly, Joan's silk tent had been torn, and the girl was in a state of bordering upon hysterics. Somewhat reassured by our noisy presence, however, for she was plucky at heart, she pulled herself together and tried to explain what had happened, and her broken words, told there on the edge of night and morning upon this wild island ridge, were oddly thrilling and distressingly convincing. "'Something touched me, and I woke,' she said simply in a voice still hushed and broken with the terror of it, something pushing against the tent. I felt it through the canvas. There was the same sniffing and scratching as before, and I felt the tent give a little, as when the wind shakes it. I heard breathing, very loud, very heavy breathing, and then 
came a sudden great tearing blow, and the canvas ripped open close to my face. She had instantly dashed out through the open flap and screamed at the top of her voice, thinking the creature had actually got into the tent. But nothing was visible, she declared, and she heard not the faintest sound of an animal making off under cover of the darkness. The brief account seemed to exercise a paralyzing effect upon us all as we listened to it. I can see the disheveled group to this day, the wind blowing the women's hair, and Maloney craning his head forward to listen, and his wife, open-mouthed and gasping, leaning against a pine-tree. "'Come over to the stockade and we'll get the fire going,' I said. "'That's the first thing,' for we were all shaking with the cold in our scanty garments." And at that moment Sangree arrived, wrapped in a blanket and carrying his gun. He was still drunken with sleep. The dog again, Maloney explained briefly, forestalling his questions, been at Jones' tent, torn at Bagad, this time. It's time we did something. He went on mumbling confusedly to himself. Sangree gripped his gun and looked about swiftly in the darkness. I saw his eyes aflame in the glare of the flickering lanterns. He made a movement as though to start out and hunt and kill. Then his glance fell on the girl crouching on the ground, her face hidden in her hands, and there leapt into his features an expression of savage anger that transformed them. He could have faced a dozen lions with a walking stick at that moment, and again I liked him for the strength of his anger, his self-control, and his hopeless devotion. But I stopped him going off on a blind and useless chase. "'Come and help me start the fire, Sangree,' I said, anxious also to relieve the girl of our presence. And a few minutes later the ashes, still glowing from the night's fire, had kindled the fresh wood, and there was a blaze that warmed us well, while it also lit up the surrounding trees within a radius of twenty yards. "'I heard nothing,' he whispered. "'What in the world do you think it is? It surely can't be only a dog.' "'We'll find that out later,' I said, as the others came up to the grateful warmth. "'The first thing is to make a, as big a fire as we can.' Joan was calmer now, and her mother had put on some warmer and less miraculous garments. And while they stood talking in low voices, Maloney and I slipped off to examine the tent. There was little enough to see, but that little was unmistakable. Some animal had scratched up the ground at the head of the tent, and with a great blow of a powerful paw, a paw clearly provided with good claws, had struck the silk and torn it open. There was a hole large enough to pass a fist and arm through. "'It can't be far away,' Maloney said excitedly. "'We'll organize a hunt at once, this very minute.' We hurried back to the fire, Maloney talking boisterously about his proposed hunt. "'There's nothing like prompt action to dispel alarm,' he whispered in my ear, and then turned to the rest of us. "'We'll hunt the island from end to end at once,' he said with excitement. "'That's what we'll do. The beast can't be far away, and the boatswain's mate and Joan must come too, because they can't be left alone. Hubbard, you take the right shore, and you, Sangree, the left, and I'll go in the middle with the women. In this way we can stretch clean across the ridge, and nothing bigger than a rabbit can possibly escape us. He was extraordinarily excited, I thought. Anything affecting Joan, of course, stirred him prodigiously. Get your guns, and we'll start the drive at once, he cried. He lit another lantern and handed one each to his wife and Joan, and while I ran to fetch my gun I heard him singing to himself with the excitement of it all. Meanwhile the dawn had come on quickly. It made the flickering lanterns look pale. 
the wind, too, was rising, and I heard the trees moaning overhead and the waves breaking with increasing clamor on the shore. In the lagoon the boat dipped and splashed, and the sparks from the fire were carried aloft in a stream and scattered far and wide. We made our way to the extreme end of the island, measured our distances carefully, and then began to advance. None of us spoke. Sangri and I, with cocked guns, watched the shorelines, and all within easy touch and speaking distance. It was a slow and blundering drive, and there were many false alarms, but after the best part of half an hour we stood on the farther end, having made the complete tour, and without putting up so much as a squirrel. Certainly there was no living creature on that island but ourselves. "'I know what it is,' cried Maloney, looking out over the dim expanse of grey sea, and speaking with the air of a man making a discovery. "'It's a dog from one of the farms on the larger islands,' he pointed seawards, where the archipelago thickened, "'and it's escaped and turned wild. Our fires and voices attracted it, and it's probably half-starved as well as savage, poor brute.' No one said anything in reply, and he began to sing again, very low to himself. The point where we stood, a huddled, shivering group, faced the wider channels that led to the open sea and Finland. The grey dawn had broken in earnest at last, and we could see the racing waves with their angry crests of white. The surrounding islands showed up as dark masses in the distance, and in the east, almost as Maloney spoke, the sun came up with a rush in a stormy and magnificent sky of red and gold. Against this splashed and gorgeous background, black clouds, shaped like fantastic and legendary animals, filed past swiftly in a tearing stream, and to this day I have only to close my eyes to see again that vivid and hurrying procession in the air. All about us the pines made black splashes against the sky. It was an angry sunrise. Rain, indeed, had already begun to fall in big drops. We turned, as by a common instinct, and without speech made our way back slowly to the stockade. Maloney humming snatches of his songs, Sangree in front with his gun prepared to shoot at a moment's notice, and the women floundering in the rear with myself and the extinguished lanterns. Yet it was only a dog. Really, it was most singular when one came to reflect soberly upon it. Events, say the occultists, have souls. Or at least that agglomerate life due to the emotions and thoughts of all concerned in them, so that cities and even whole countries have great astral shapes which may become visible to the eye of vision. And certainly here... The soul of this drive, this vain, blundering, futile drive, stood somewhere between ourselves and laughed. All of us heard that laugh, and all of us tried hard to smother the sound, or at least to ignore it. Everyone talked at once, loudly and with exaggerated decision, obviously trying to say something plausible against heavy odds, striving to explain naturally that an animal might so easily conceal itself from us, or swim away before we had time to light upon its trail. For we all spoke of that trail as though it really existed, and we had more to go upon than the mere marks of paws about the tents of Joan and the Canadian. Indeed, but for these, and the torn tent, I think it would, of course, have been possible to ignore the existence of this beast intruder altogether. And it was here, under this angry dawn, as we stood in the shelter of the stockade from the pouring rain, weary, yet so strangely excited, it was here, 
out of this confusion of voices and explanations that, very stealthily, the ghost of something horrible slipped in and stood among us. It made all our explanations seem childish and untrue. The false relation was instantly exposed. Eyes exchanged quick, anxious glances, questioning, expressive of dismay. There was a sense of wonder, of poignant distress, and of trepidation. Alarm stood waiting at our elbows. We shivered. Then suddenly, as we looked into each other's faces, came the long, unwelcome pause in which this new arrival established itself in our hearts. And without further speech or attempt at explanation, Maloney moved off abruptly to mix the porridge for an early breakfast, Sangri to clean the fish, myself to chop wood and tend the fire, Joan and her mother to change their wet garments, and most significant of all, to prepare her mother's tent for its future complement of two. Each went to his duty, but hurriedly, awkwardly, silently and this new arrival, this shape of terror and distress, stalked viewless by the side of each. If only I could have traced that dog, I think was the thought in the minds of all. But in camp, where everyone realizes how important the individual contribution is to the comfort and well-being of all, the mind speedily recovers tone and pulls itself together. During the day, a day of heavy and ceaseless rain, we kept more or less to our tents, and though there were signs of mysterious conferences between the three members of the Maloney family, I think that most of us slept a good deal, and stayed alone with his thoughts. Certainly I did, because when Maloney came to say that his wife invited us all to a special tea in her tent, he had to shake me awake before I realized he was there at all. And by supper-time we were more or less even-minded again, and almost jolly. I only noticed that there was an undercurrent of what is best described as jumpiness, and that the merest snapping of a twig or plop of a fish in the lagoon was sufficient to make us start and look over our shoulders. Pauses were rare in our talk, and the fire was never for one instant allowed to get low. The wind and rain had ceased, but the dripping of the branches still kept up an excellent imitation of a downpour. In particular, Maloney was vigilant and alert telling us a series of tales in which the wholesome humorous element was especially strong. He lingered, too, behind with me after Sangri had gone to bed, and while I mixed myself a glass of hot Swedish punch, he did a thing I had never known him to do before. He mixed one for himself, and then asked me to light him over to his tent. We said nothing on the way, but I felt he was glad of my companionship. I returned alone to the stockade and for a long time after that kept the fire blazing and sat up smoking and thinking. I hardly knew why, but sleep was far from me for one thing, and for another an idea was taking form in my mind that required the comfort of tobacco and a bright fire for its growth. I lay against a corner of that stockade seat, listening to the wind whispering and to the ceaseless drip-drip of the trees. The night otherwise was very still, and the sea quiet as a lake. I remember that I was conscious, particularly conscious, of this host of desolate islands crowding about us in the darkness, and that we were the one little spot of humanity in a rather wonderful kind of wilderness. But this, I think, 
was the only symptom that came to warn me of highly strung nerves, and it certainly was not sufficiently alarming to destroy my peace of mind. One thing, however, did come to disturb my peace, for just as I finally made ready to go and had kicked the embers of the fire into a last effort, I fancied I saw peering at me round the farther end of the stockade wall a dark and shadowy mass that might have been, that strongly resembled, in fact, the body of a large animal. Two glowing eyes shone for an instant in the middle of it, but the next second I saw that it was merely a projecting mass of moss and lichen in the wall of our stockade, and the eyes were a couple of wandering sparks from the dying ashes I had kicked. It was easy enough, too, to imagine I saw an animal moving here and there between the trees as I picked my way stealthily to my tent. Of course, the shadows tricked me. And though it was after one o'clock, Maloney's light was still burning, for I saw his tent shining white among the pines. It was, however, in the short space between consciousness and sleep, that time when the body is low and the voices of the submerged region tell sometimes true, that the idea which had been all this while maturing reached the point of actual decision, and I suddenly realized that I had resolved to send word to Dr. Silence. For with a sudden wonder that I had hitherto been so blind, the unwelcome conviction dawned upon me all at once that some dreadful thing was lurking about us on this island, and that the safety of at least one of us was threatened by something monstrous and unclean that was too horrible to contemplate. And again, remembering those last words of his as the train moved out of the platform, I understood that Dr. Silence would hold himself in readiness to come. "'Unless you should send for me sooner,' he had said. "'I found myself suddenly wide awake. "'It is impossible to say what woke me, "'but it was no gradual process, "'seeing that I jumped from deep sleep to absolute alertness "'in a single instant. "'I had evidently slept for an hour and more. When the, "'For the night had cleared, the stars crowded the sky, "'and a pallid half-moon, just sinking into the sea, "'threw a spectral light between the trees.' I went outside to sniff the air, and stood upright. A curious impression that something was astir in the camp came over me, and when I glanced across at Sangri's tent some twenty feet away, I saw that it was moving. He, too, then was awake and restless, for I saw the canvas sides bulge this way and that as he moved within. The tent flap pushed forward. He was coming out, like myself, to sniff the air, and I was not surprised, for its sweetness after the rain was intoxicating. And he came on all fours, just as I had done. I saw a head thrust round the edge of the tent. And then I saw that it was not sangry at all. It was an animal. And the same instant I realized something else, too. It was THE animal and its whole presentment, for some unaccountable reason, was unutterably malefic. A cry I was quite unable to suppress escaped me, and the creature turned on the instant and stared at me with baleful eyes. I could have dropped on the spot, for the strength all ran out of my body with a rush. Something about it touched in me the living terror that grips and paralyzes. If the mind requires but the tenth of a second to form an impression, I must have stood there stock-still for several seconds while I seized the ropes for support and stared. 
Many and vivid impressions flashed through my mind, but not one of them resulted in action, because I was in instant dread that the beast any moment would leap in my direction and be upon me. Instead, however, after what seemed a vast period, it slowly turned its eyes from my face, uttered a low whining sound, and came out altogether into the open. Then, for the first time, I saw it in its entirety, and noted two things. It was about the size of a large dog, but at the same time it was utterly unlike any animal that I had ever seen. Also, that the quality that had impressed me first as being malefic was really only its singular and original strangeness. Foolish as it may sound, and impossible as it is for me to adduce proof, I can only say that the animal seemed to me then to be not real. But all this passed through my mind in a flash, almost subconsciously, and before I had time to check my impressions, or even properly verify them, I made an involuntary movement, catching the tight-rope in my hand so that it twanged like a banjo-string, and in that instant the creature turned the corner of Sangri's tent and was gone into the darkness. Then, of course, my senses in some measure returned to me, and I realized only one thing. It had been inside his tent. I dashed out, reached the door in half a dozen strides, and looked in. The Canadian, thank God, lay upon his bed of branches. His arm was stretched outside across the blankets, the fist tightly clenched, and the body had an appearance of unusual rigidity that was alarming. On his face there was an expression of effort, almost of painful effort, as far as the uncertain light permitted me to see, and his sleep seemed to be very profound. He looked, I thought, so stiff, so unnaturally stiff, and in some indefinable way, too, he looked smaller, shrunken. I called to him to wake, but called many times in vain. Then I decided to shake him, and had already moved forward to do so vigorously, when there came a sound of footsteps padding softly behind me, and I felt a stream of hot breath burn my neck as I stooped. I turned sharply. The tent door was darkened, and something silently swept in. I felt a rough and shaggy body push past me, and I knew that the animal had returned. It seemed to leap forward between me and Sangri, in fact, to leap upon Sangri, for its dark body hid him momentarily from view, and in that moment my soul turned sick and coward, with a horror that rose from the very dregs and depths of life, and gripped my existence at its central source. The creature seemed somehow to melt away into him, almost as though it belonged to him and were a part of him, but in the same instant, that instant of extraordinary confusion and terror in my mind, it seemed to pass over and behind him, and in some utterly unaccountable fashion it was gone. And the Canadian woke and sat up with a start. "'Quick, you fool!' I cried in my excitement. "'The beast has been in your tent, here at your very throat, while you sleep like the dead!' "'Up, man! Get your gun! Only this second it disappeared over there behind your head! Quick! Or Joan!' And somehow the fact that he was there, wide awake now, to corroborate me, brought the additional conviction to my mind that this was no animal, but some perplexing and dreadful form of life that drew upon my deeper knowledge, that much reading had perhaps assented to, but that had never yet come within actual range of my senses.' 
He was up in a flash and out. He was trembling and very white. We searched hurriedly, feverishly, but found only the traces of paw marks passing from the door of his own tent across the moss to the women's. And the sight of the tracks about Mrs. Maloney's tent, where Joan now slept, set him in a perfect fury. Do you know what it is, Hubbard? This beast? he hissed under his breath at me. It's a damned wolf. That's what it is. A wolf lost among the islands and starving to death, desperate. So help me God, I believe it's that. He talked a lot of rubbish in his excitement. He declared he would sleep by day and sit up every night till he killed it. Again, his rage touched my admiration, but I got him away before he made enough noise to wake the whole camp. I have a better plan than that, I said, watching his face closely. I don't think this is anything we can deal with. I'm going to send for the only man I know who can help. We'll go to Waxholm this very morning and get a telegram through. Sangree stared at me with a curious expression as the fury died out of his face, and a new look of alarm took its place. John Silence, I said, will know. You think it's something of that sort? he stammered. I am sure of it. There was a moment's pause. That's worse, far worse than anything material, he said, growing visibly paler. He looked from my face to the sky, and then added with sudden resolution, Come, the wind's rising. Let's get off at once. From there you can telephone to Stockholm, and get a telegram sent without delay. I sent him down to get the boat ready, and seized the opportunity myself to run and wake Maloney. He was sleeping very lightly, and sprang up the moment I put my head inside his tent. I told him briefly what I had seen, and he showed so little surprise that I caught myself wondering for the first time whether he himself had seen more going on than he had deemed wise to communicate to the rest of us. He agreed to my plan without a moment's hesitation, and my last words to him were to let his wife and daughter think that the great psychic doctor was coming merely as a chance visitor, and not with any professional interest. So, with frying pan, provisions, and blankets aboard, Sangri and I sailed out of the lagoon fifteen minutes later, and headed with a good breeze for the direction of Waxholm and the borders of civilization. End of Part 3 The Camp of the Dog by Algernon Blackwood